Have you ever tried to change a habit? How's that going? It's tricky, right? Okay, have you ever tried to change 10,000 habits across a large population of employees? Well, that's what organizations are trying to do as they renew their focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion and attempt to initiate change at scale. At NLI, we've been in the behavior change business for a while, 13 years to be exact, and in that time, we've learned a thing or two. Central to the challenge is mobilizing leaders. Anyone familiar with this tall task probably has visions of a twirling baton in their hand in front of a parade of cats. Fortunately, we've discovered brain-based strategies that can help get your people engaged and aligned. Otherwise, you may be looking at a city block's worth full of cat fur. I'm Gabriel Berzin, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work from the Neuroleadership Institute. We continue to draw our episodes from a weekly webinar series that NLI has been hosting every Friday. This week, our panel features NLI co-founder and CEO, Dr. David Rock, DEI practice lead, Esther Neznanova, and senior researcher, Michaela Simpson. Together, the panel discusses how to engage and motivate leaders to act on DEI by activating emotional buy-in, accentuating the powerful and far-reaching benefits, and explaining the actual mechanisms of change. Enjoy. This is a topic that's, I know, near and dear to a lot of people, and I didn't realize how much this theme was coming up in conversations, especially over the last you know, three or four months, and just how many similar conversations we we're having. So I kind of looked back and went, wow, everyone keeps thinking about this, asking about this. And so I wanted to kind of start to frame up our thinking on the right ways to actually engage leaders. I should warn you, there are some provocations here. There are some counterintuitive things here. For those new to us, we are 22 years old, operations in 24 countries, advisor to over 50 of the Fortune 100. And our work is making organizations more human through science. And we do that by helping companies activate the right habits at scale. We build habit activation strategies based on real research. And we continuously push out new research as those of you following us since March, perhaps for the first time are seeing, we're very active in studying things and since March, ridiculously active in kind of really, really looking at trends and trying to find the signal in the noise. And that's what we wanted to do today. So Esther, do you want to take it away with kind of a little bit of the framing of sort of how we think about change across DEI? Yes, definitely. Thank you, David. So when we think about culture transformation, there are really three essential elements to drive culture transformation at scale and also be able to drive for long-term success. And those are priorities, habits, and systems. The first one priority is, are the goals and changes that your organization wants? But also priorities is, how do your employees actually hear those goals and changes? So for instance, if you're saying it's important to be an inclusive leader, what do the employees actually hear? The third main component in priorities is the leadership buy-in and the leaders really driving the efforts forward, which is what we will be talking about today. The second essential element of driving culture transformation is the habit formation. So when you said something is important, what are some of the habits that you're driving to make sure that the goals are met? And practicing new behaviors and new habits is essential in culture transformation. Now the third element is the systems. And the systems is the overall ecosystem of your organization. 
that includes talent management systems, that include business systems, your DEI systems, how you communicate. It's almost like a canvas for your whole organization. And I'm sure you know that we can set goals and that's why New Year's resolutions, we see it every year. We can set goals and even start practicing the habits. But if we don't do the systems part, if you're trying to be more healthy, but at the same time you have a lot of junk food everywhere in your apartment, then it doesn't really drive towards your goals. So yeah. these are the three key elements that really drive culture transformation. And that's great. Michaela, you know, you're one of our key researchers, key scientists. You want to take us away with just kind of one click down on this? Right, just to one click down. So Esther already described what we mean by priorities. And just to hone on that, that's about creating intentions to act. It has to do with our intentions and our motivation. And one of the things we need to be mindful of when we set priorities for an organization and we want our people to buy into it, they do need to buy into it. And we need to realize that just generally as human beings, we do best and we follow through best when we have what's called intrinsic motivation, when it comes from within, while we know why we're doing something and it's kind of self-determined why we do it rather than there's an external reward or punishment. So it's really important for leaders to understand that we need all buy-in in order, you know, if we, if we establish priorities, it's important to have the buy-in. And then there's that motivation there. And motivation, when we have priorities, it directs our attention, our cognitive resources towards our priority, towards our goal. So it's really important to have that alignment with the priorities and the motivation. Because then again, we can, you know, use our brain, our cognitive resources, our attention, our working memory to work towards implementing those goals. And moving on to habits, as we all know, kind of practice, well, we say practice makes better. And so habits are formed through repetitive behavior. And when we start introducing a new idea, it can be a little bit clunky, right? It's a conscious effort. And we need to do that repetitively, repeatedly. And when we do that, then it becomes more automatic and more non-conscious. But first, we need to take those steps and be really mindful. So it's, again, very important for leaders to help establish clear behaviors that everybody can work towards. Because when they're clear, and what we say sticky means it's easy to remember what the new behavior is, the new habit that we want to employ then it makes it easier. And then when it's meaningful to us, it makes it even more easy for us to engage in those behaviors that will lead to habits. And although we engage in new behaviors with the intention to form habits, we have to sustain the habits. So we need to repeat them, but they need to be consistently sustained, which is where systems comes in place because systems can create that container, that environment in which we can support those new behaviors we're trying on and that we're building. And so I think I'll leave it at that unless, David, you want to add a little bit more. No, it's great. Just there's a lot of research, like decades of research showing people over index on the priority stage. People assume that they've got to get that part right. And it's more that that's just easier to think about. You know, we think about what's easy, not what's right. To think right. About. And that's the first step, right? Because then you actually have to actualize, you actually have to implement mm. and follow through. The systems are kind of also a little bit concrete. So the sort of priorities are concrete, the systems are concrete. The habit work is sort of abstract and the brain doesn't like abstract thing. It sort of goes to the concrete. So that's our work, the habits. And then, you know, the real question is which habits really have an impact and why and how. And all. But that's for another time. Let's dig in a little more. Esther, talk to us about how this looks as it sort of hits an organization. 
Yeah, so that's the fascinating part because when we start working with the organizations around their diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies, we noticed that the first step was actually often missed. So we talk to the leaders about our goals, but we actually don't mobilize the leaders fully before we build the strategy. That's why the first step is actually mobilizing your leaders, which we will talk about later. The second step is building long-term sustainable strategies based on priorities, habits, and systems. And after you've built those strategies, you're activating the habits and reimagining your enterprise systems to drive for long-term change. We wanted to sort of lay this out and show you kind of these different stages because these are quite different stages of work you have to do living on top of PHS. But the thing to know is mobilizing leaders is really important, but it's very much the first step. It's harder than it looks. And that's what we want to dig into. So this is sort of some background, I guess, but now let's get into today's topic. What does it take to really mobilize leaders? And the first insight that I want to share about this is that you can't mobilize leaders. (laughs) You can't just think about mobilizing leaders because they're in many different places. You can't actually have one strategy for mobilizing leaders. You actually need to think about them on a bell curve. There are people who are passionate advocates on the right here, right? Who are super inspired about diversity, equity, inclusion, living it, breathing it, championing, you know, all of that. Then there are people who are generally bought in, not particularly active. Maybe some of them are on the fence, right? In the middle, that's maybe the bigger group. And then there's people who are actively pushing back, right? And there are people who are saying, this is wrong. We should be focused on making money. This is a distraction, all of that. And when you think about a strategy, you should be really thoughtful about who the strategy is for, because certain strategies will work really differently depending on kind of the bulk of where your people are. So as you think about mobilizing your leaders, make sure you think about where they are now and the different kinds of strategies that you might need to use. That's the cliff note. It's such an interesting thought, isn't it? Because you might automatically have a bias, maybe an experience bias. If you're a passionate advocate, you would probably have an experience bias. We would assume other people are easily convinced to be like that. And we have a thing called the false consensus effect, which is we automatically assume other people think like us, but actually they don't mostly. Yes, I also wanted to challenge us a little bit here because when I go into companies and when I really start working on leadership buy-in, we often tend to see that the DNI team actually thinks that the leaders are generally bought in. Yet when we start actually holding the executive sessions and the workshops and diving into how the DNI strategy or diversity, inclusion, how they understand it, how that ties to their business goals, there is no clear understanding there most of the time. So here, I would also challenge what bought in is, as well as what is generally bought in, because if they say, yes, diversity is important, it's one thing. But if they actually understand how that ties to their business goals or how that ties to how that has an emotional connection for them and why it's important on a human level, that is a totally different level than them actually saying that they're bought in. Right. We're going to dig into that in a minute as well. And there's something I want to share here. And Basically, what do you do now? Like, what are the different approaches? Should you approach the middle or should you empower the passionate advocates to move the middle along? Or should you go after those actively pushing back or should you ignore them, right? Like what's the right focus? And it can be very easy because of kind of a safety bias to end up really putting attention on the people actively pushing back. But is that where you get the biggest return or could you kind of bring those people along if you get the middle bigger? So we're going to dig into that question and all the science around that at the summit. But I think you want to be intentional about that choice. 
is the point that we're making here is be really intentional about who you're going after, not just automatically go after the active pushing back. When we're more intentional with anything we do, we're more likely to succeed in our endeavors. So intention is really important. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. All right. So let's dig into kind of the guts of the session today, for want of a better word, the heart of the session, perhaps, which is we were thinking about like all the different approaches that we use at NLI and thinking about sort of the differences between them. You know, we may be missing some things, but this is sort of our first thoughts on the three ways that you can mobilize leaders and the pluses and minuses of each. And so we're going to kind of walk through each one, discuss them. So do you want to talk about the first one, activating emotional buy-in? What's your thoughts there? The first part around activating emotional buy-in, it is very important when we're striving for really getting a buy-in to make sure that the person is emotionally invested and understands how it relates to them on an emotional level, as well as understands the overall values level within it. And one of the biggest challenges here in diversity, equity, and inclusion space that we see is that that's kind of like the carrot or the stick problem where we see a lot of you have to do that because it's wrong not to the stick part of it and a lot of blame associated with the topics and in reality what ends up happening is that it actually pushes people away so how do we come up with productive ways to challenge and productive ways to really bring everybody on board within it And I know that there are also some traps. So I would love to hear from you, David, on the traps piece when it comes to emotional buying. Yeah, it's tricky. And I am also a bit delicate about how to speak here because I don't want to, you know, misspeak, but it feels right to do this. I mean, I'm a passionate advocate for diversity, equity, inclusion in every way, in every part of my life. But I also know the more passionate I get about it, the more people kind of pull away, right? If they're not. And I was thinking about this years ago, sort of the evangelist challenge. You know, when you're an evangelist about something, doesn't it could be about an app, right? Or DEI, like anything. When you're really excited, you sort of naturally want to share your enthusiasm, right? But what happens is people react to that enthusiasm with almost like a status attack, like you're making their worldview wrong. And they also feel like you're telling them what to do, like you're telling them how to change. And you're getting an autonomy attack. So it's a really difficult paradox every bone in your body knows this is the right thing to do. You are kind of an evangelist in a way, like you're passionate about this, right? And it feels so right to create an emotional connection to this work. It does feel right. And it is right on so many levels, right? To tell people about the pain that folks feel that the hundreds of times that a person of color might feel micro emotions, microaggressions a week, like the incredible pain that people have felt. And yet it has these unintended accidental pushback. And what we've seen with the government announcement about, you know, you can't do diversity training, for example, is this writ large in a way. This is, I'm not going to take to being told that I'm bad. So you can't tell my government that I'm bad, right? So it's really difficult, this one. It's a dilemma. And we've struggled with this, but it's an important issue. Michaela, do you want to add something there, Esther? I just want to speak to that defensive piece or what Esther was talking about, the blame part, and I'd add the blame and shame and whether or not that's explicit and that might not be the intent, but some people might get the effect, oh, you're talking about me and I'm feeling shame. The point is when people feel defensive, they might feel that they're blamed or shamed, whether or not that was the intention, then people 
don't want to listen and they will not take in the information. And so to speak again to, you know, how do we speak to these things in a productive way? And David, I acknowledge that challenge you talk about when you feel that something's right and you want to tell people this, like, why don't they understand? And what is that internal experience of the other person? And I guess part of it is for understand that people are having some kind of internal experience that we might not be privy to that is creating this defensiveness and this not wanting to hear. It just reminds me of intent versus impact. You know, your intent's good, but your impact's completely different, right? And the difference between intent and impact is important here. Esther? Yes, and to add to that as well, it goes back to the bell curve and making sure that we actually meet people where they're at as well as use the science productively, right? So we talk a lot about SCARF and the importance when you want to actively include to actually send positive SCARF signals within all of those. So we can definitely use it here as well. The challenge is we all have bias, tremendous amount of bias, but we actually don't see our own bias or very much of it. We see snippets of it. Remember that sort of consciously we can process about a cubic foot unconsciously. There's the Milky Way in our own brain, like stuff we can't access. So there's enormous amounts going on that we cannot access in ourselves. but we can see other people being biased in real time. So there's this weird paradox, and this has been studied, there's tons of data on this, that Everyone thinks they're above average driver. You've heard that research, you know, which is impossible. Everyone thinks everyone else is biased also, much more biased than them. But the reason for that is that the way our brain is tuned, we can't see infrared and we can't see calcium. We also can't see our own bias. It's just a thing we can't do, but we can see other people's. So their lived experience is that they don't really have bias. And you come along and say, hey, you've got bias. They're like, no, I don't, but I'll tell you who does. And then, you know, there's this weird thing that happens. So it's an interesting challenge. Esther, do you want to address the comment about the government diversity training and just to sort of get that behind us about stereotyping and gender and race? Yes. So it evolved a lot this week. And so there have been specific guidelines around what the government officials are supposed and not supposed to be learning about. And as part of that, everything around race, racism, anti-racism, as well as unconscious bias, there's a clear guideline that there shouldn't be training within it. And yet there has been a lot of evolution there. I will say that back to your point, David, often it goes back to lack of deep understanding around what those terms necessarily mean. So when it comes to unconscious bias, the way we approach it is from the science standpoint and decision-making, for instance, right? They're not against diversity training. We have actually checked with a number of big government agencies we're working with. We're doing some huge rollouts of work right now on bias with some major government agencies. We check with them and we're actually able to continue. There was no issue because we're not doing that kind of shaming, blaming path in that sense. So I'm treading a little carefully. If you're enjoying this podcast, you're going to love NLI's annual conference, the Neuroleadership Summit. This year, the all-virtual summit centers around building a better normal and will offer three days of impactful sessions focused on your most pressing issues, how to remain resilient, how to thrive through crises, allyship, equity, equality, and fairness, and continually learning while in a work-from-home world. Join us online November 10th through 12th and attend sessions available across the globe. You can watch sessions live on your desktop or access content on the go. We promise you won't want to miss it. To register and learn more, visit summit.neuroleadership.com. To save on a three-day non-member pass, use the promo code PODSUMMIT2020. That's PODSUMMIT2020. We look forward to seeing you there.
Let's continue because I think there's more coming. So the first approach to mobilizing leaders, remember we're talking about mobilizing leaders, not building habits, right? We're just talking about how do you mobilize leaders? And, you know, to someone's point earlier as well, all leaders need to be mobilized, but of course leaders at the top need to be mobilized, right? But really all leaders need to be mobilized. But, you know, the first strategy is kind of tap into their emotions. We're not saying that's a bad thing, but, you know, you've got to tread carefully and think about how you do it. The second strategy that kind of is almost like the next most obvious thing, like, okay, so we're not going to tap their emotions. What we're going to do instead is focus on outcome studies. We're going to show them that it's logically good, right? And this is where sort of the DEI world has been for some years, that everyone sort of felt like, oh, if we just had enough data, we could convince leaders that DEI is good. And so when I say outcome studies, I mean kind of research showing that it has a positive effect, right? And so we organized all the literature we could find a few years ago into essentially four benefits of diversity, equity, inclusion. It's really DEI these days, but four benefits, financial benefits, there's tons of studies, innovation benefits, tons of studies, go to market benefits, right? Talent pool benefits. And we were able to say, look, there's just unequivocally large amounts of clear evidence that this is good for business, right? And here's an example. Do you want to walk through this just briefly, Esther? Definitely. So when it comes to financial benefits, there are so many studies, including that, for instance, an increase in women top management to 30% actually gives a 15% rise in productivity. But overall, it's higher cash flow, higher productivity, higher innovation, EBIT rises as well. So there are a lot of benefits. That being said, when we often do the outcome study briefings to our leaders within the companies, the question is, are you actually making those numbers alive, right? And are you connecting that to your leaders' individual business goals and helping that see that from their level and their standpoint, other than than almost throwing numbers at them as to why that is important? It sort of feels like we're trying to convince them with data. Do you know that thing about, you know, if someone isn't convinced, doesn't matter how much data you throw at them, it doesn't really make a difference. And people just question the studies. They just like to argue the studies. You know, I mean, we literally can turn up with 10 amazing, fully referenced studies for each of these four things. And we did two years ago. That was kind of where we were. Everyone was like, tell us the business case. Tell us the business case. And we would turn up and everyone would just go, yep. And I could see no minds were changing. You know, I could see that in the room, that minds were not changing. It was interesting. Mikala, do you want to add something there? Yeah, I just wanted to add kind of on what Esther was saying. Like, it's so important for the information. You know, if you do have facts and numbers, it needs to be relevant to people. People need to know, like, what does this have to do with me? How does this impact me? Hopefully it impacts on an emotional level or some way that they can see how it applies to them. Because sometimes people are like, yeah, that doesn't really apply to me. Everything's working fine the way it normally is. Why do I need to change anything? So it's really when we can make things more salient, where it's more relevant to an audience, again, it means it's more impactful and then it will create more of a change in people and create more of a shift. I don't mean to put it down to this level, but kind of what's in it for me, for people to like, ah, I get it. I see how this benefits my organization, my team myself even. Yeah, it definitely helps Mm -hmm. if someone's really focused on innovation, for example, like picking just the right innovation data and really hammering that home. So I totally agree with both of you, but I still found at the end of the day, it was like, "Eh, okay, you know, so it's better. So I better do it. But I never really saw, and I did between 150 and 250 briefings over a couple of years using this kind of data, literally to thousands of leaders. We stopped really anchoring on this a while back. Maybe a year ago, we sort of stopped anchoring as much on this. We still have it. 
But just what I saw, even when we did that, it was better. Even when we did that, I wasn't seeing real commitment. Unless essentially the sort of CEO and the C-suite said, we're doing this, just you have to get on board. Then maybe people were like, all right, you know, we'll do it, but sort of begrudgingly. But this brings us to the third chapter. And Michaela, do you want to walk us through this? Esther, you had a comment first? There's a strong belief in diversity. And what they need to focus on is equity and inclusion, which is where the rubber really meets the road. And that's the second challenge with this specific approach. Because when we talk about numbers, we really talk about diversity. And often we don't even understand that that goes beyond to cognitive diversity, difference of styles, etc. But as we love to say, diversity is having a seat at the table, inclusion is having a voice and unconscious bias, why some voices are heard more than others. And what we see is that if you shift diversity, but you're not being inclusive, you don't shift inclusion, that leads to a revolving door of talent. So when you're persuading leaders when it comes to the data, make sure that you're not laser focused on shifting diversity numbers because that is not the point. Yeah, fantastic. We've talked about emotional buy-in. It feels like that's the most logical thing. That's the go-to, but it has some unintended consequences. We've talked about outcome studies. These are the categories from NLI's perspective of the outcome studies to kind of really bring a live business case. But there's a third category, a third approach that Michaela will walk us through that we sort of landed on, and this is where we end up spending most time on, it seems to make the biggest difference. And it's kind of explaining the actual mechanisms of how this works in a deep way. So yeah, Michaela, take us away there. Okay, I'm going to dive deeper into uh, Harvard Business Review articles penned by David and some of our colleagues from NLI. And it's about diverse teams. And I do want to put the caveat right up front. Again, Esther is always that great lead in for me where I'm going to be talking about diversity and diverse teams, but also I want you to keep in mind that this is really only effective when people do feel that they're included and that they belong. So it's not just, again, as Esther said, let's just put in diverse people. You need to have that sense of inclusion and cohesion for it to really be effective. And so as you have probably already surmised or or also have understood when reading the industry literature, diverse teams do work better. They perform better. Companies find they have better financial returns when you have diverse teams. And again, when we talk about diversity, it can be anything from diversity of thought, diversity of background to, you know, we call like the physical attributes or signs of diversity. So across the board, diverse teams generally work better. We find that they're more creative. They're more innovative. They generate more solutions. They focus more on facts and they remain objective. And it says they work harder. In a way, they have to work harder because they're not engaging in groupthink. You know, groupthink is people coming together. They're pretty similar. They think the same way. They don't really necessarily think about other options and they don't necessarily question. And everybody thinks the same. When you get somebody else who has a different perspective or more people or a group of people with different perspectives, it's going to be harder work, right? You're not going to have this easy flowing feeling. It's like you have to work at it. You need to you know, present your ideas, share ideas, understand other people's perspectives. But actually what they find is it leads to better performance. So for example, or just better decision-making, there are all kinds of studies, but there's one I'd like to highlight. There is one on mock jury panels and there are different configurations. And basically the ones where their mock juries were diverse and that there were white people and black people on the mock jury and they were judging somebody who was Black who was accused of doing something against somebody who was white, they found that the diverse panels, they actually paid more attention to facts 
that were related to the case than the homogeneous groups, and they made fewer factual errors when they were discussing the available evidence. And if they got something wrong, they were likely to correct their wrong decision-making when they were doing the deliberation. So we find that it can be a little bit tough to engage when you're with a more diverse team, but you get better results. And David mentioned a little bit earlier that diverse teams are more innovative. So there are all kinds of studies. Again, I could give you all kinds of outcome studies, but just know they find across the board, you know, if they're companies with more women on them, they'll find more innovation. If businesses are run by cultural diverse leadership teams, same thing, which talks about another article that we published written by David Rock about how it can feel uncomfortable. So I was kind of alluding to that a little bit earlier. It can be a little bit uncomfortable to be on a diverse team. And Esther, you might want to pipe in here, but there's an actual paradox. So people feel a little less effective and more uncomfortable, but ironically, they actually perform better. So again, I could come to you with any number of studies that show, and I can walk you through one, where they basically had a task And there were some homogeneous teams and there were some diverse teams. People on these teams who were from the diverse group, they felt that their teams weren't as effective because, you know, it was like, it wasn't simple. It was a little bit hard. And they felt that they weren't as effective. The diverse teams also weren't very confident in their performance. What they found was they actually performed better than the homogeneous teams. And so it's really important to realize that diverse teams when we have it coupled with inclusion, perform really well. And it's very important to have the buy-in for the leaders to understand this. Again, it's not just let's bring in numbers, but we value diversity. We value the perspectives and the experiences that people bring in. And we set those norms. Then we create the conditions for better performance. Esther, I'd love to invite you in. And if you'd like to add anything. Yes. I also wanted to share here that we really need to pause and think about what that means. So we often say diverse teams are better and that's great. And remember a time when you spoke to somebody from your city, right? Or from your school, you immediately found that bond with them. And it was such an easy conversation. You were on the same page. So it feels good. Yet when it comes to diverse teams, it's much harder to find that common denominator, find that common idea yet the ideas and the decisions are stronger. So what that means for leaders is that we really need to start thinking about what are the values that we're actually communicating as important within our company? Because we're talking about speed and agility, and what we mean is fast decisions, that that actually goes against diversity and inclusion. Yet if we level up and we start talking about the importance of being heard, the importance of collaborative environments and the importance of innovation within it, then it is a very different story. And we also often confuse fast with good. We actually value all the voices that are at the table. And I'd like to extend it out to what we talk about at NLI is for people to bring their authentic selves to work. We bring all of who we are to work and not like, oh, I have to hide the fact that I have, you know, different aspects of diversity. It's there and we bring it in. And to know when we value that, then it's accepted. We understand there might be friction, but all these different perspectives are valued and appreciated. It's really helpful to have further language around diversity itself. Like there's, there is cognitive diversity. It's sort of 
there's been a lot of talk about cognitive diversity, but that can be an excuse for hiring all straight white men from different countries. But actually, identity diversity is really important. I don't have the data here top of mind. I know we've written on this. Identity diversity, which is very visible, but not always, not just visible, has a significant bump in terms of improved performance over just cognitive diversity. So yes, cognitive diversity is helpful, but identity diversity actually matters a lot more. And we'll put a piece. So these are some of the things that we kind of dig into. I mean, I think the insight we want you to have is choose intentionally. And also choose intentionally for the different places on the curve, like which one's going to work for different groups on this curve. And while that might be a nice thought to have for a team of 20 leaders, if you're going to actually build a strategy to really mobilize a thousand leaders or 10,000 leaders as we do, now you really want to start thinking about getting this right. You don't want to just guess at how to mobilize 10,000 leaders. You want to be really thoughtful about which of these strategies and at which point in the bell curve and build it that way. Fantastic. So let's go a little further. We want to talk about some of the traps that we've seen around mobilizing leaders specifically. So remember, we're talking about the mobilizing stage. We're not talking about creating habits or creating systems. We're just talking about that first stage of creating priority and what to do there. So some of the traps, Esther, do you want to talk through some of these? Sure, I can. So the first one here is really trying to convince leaders that they're biased versus focusing on the goals and making sure that, again, we're challenging positively, right? So within it, even when we talk about bias, we say, you have a brain, therefore you have bias, and that is okay. So watch how you're communicating that correctly. The second one here is around forcing somebody into diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and mandating it versus making things compelling. There's a lot of research that shows that you should not be mandating the programs and mandating the training and that it actually causes opposite results. The next one here is around doing some one-off activities or one-off briefings, for instance, instead of really investing in habit formation and investing in taking a journey with the leaders in really generating that buy-in and building long-term strategies. Until the last maybe two years, we've not been very involved in assessment at all. We're in the habit activation at scale business. In the last couple of years, we've started to really develop some tools there. Esther, do you want to sort of take that one? You know, how would we imagine an NLI kind of measuring where leaders are at this point? I don't think we can because when it comes to the buy-in for diversity, equity, and inclusion, the leaders have so much pressure right now that when it comes to specific surveys, it's going to be close to impossible to actually see the right results. That being said, what is important here is through the conversations and through the actual workshops and working with the leaders and helping them define how to speak about diversity, equity, and inclusion comfortably, within that, how do we shift the scale a little bit or how do we open to clumsy conversations among the leaders so that those that are not bought in feel like their opinion can be heard and valued and they won't be peer pressure from others to force them to say something else. Because our goal is for them not to say it, but rather to actually act like it. That being said, we do think that data and assessing really works and when it comes to employees overall, and we do hold engagement surveys and organizational climate surveys that are based on the science. Yeah, one thing we might do that we actually have available for that, we're just about to launch this, 
is an anonymous focus group that's 100% anonymous. People feel super confident because asking leaders directly, where are you on this bell curve? They're not going to respond accurately, right? But asking sort of the employees about particular leaders, for example, right? Asking the team super anonymously and a really good focus group. So basically like a Zoom, but with 100 people where no one can see anyone, everyone's got a number, all this, and like really getting in and collecting data that way. That's possible a little fraught with some challenges, but we're starting to do that. And we definitely do a lot of focus group work, but I think there's ways to do it and certainly reach out to us directly. If you're interested kind of in, in actually brainstorming on that, we would be able to come up with some kind of solution, but people are overloaded right now for sure. That also brings up for me, David, that when we talk about inclusion, I've never heard leaders say, I don't want to be inclusive or I'm not inclusive, but that goes back to intent versus impact. So we interview and do the focus groups and really pull their teams to show the leaders where the teams think they're actually at. Yeah, fantastic. Mikaela? What about swaying resistant leaders with peer slash competitive pressure? As in, if my competitor is doing this, then we should do too, so as not to lose advantage. And it kind of brings up, what are people's motivations? Like some people might be like, the numbers, that works well for me, because my competitors are doing better. Others, it's like, no, this is a moral issue. This is the right thing to do. So I just love to hear your comments. Yeah. Um, The research on how you get people to really do something you want them to do is that believing everyone else is doing it is the strongest motivator. So you want to harness that principle. And so believing everyone else is doing something is a really powerful motivator. Now in an organization, it's probably believing that people above you are doing it, right? Because then you feel a status threat if you're not doing it. So feeling like the people above you are doing something and everyone is doing it's important. Feeling like all your competitors are doing it also going to be very motivating, right? So I think you want to tap into that. And that sort of has us think about strategies where the supportive middle, given tools to become even more passionate and kind of expand and bring some of the bottom people along without directly addressing those. But if you could kind of increase the middle, you know, 10%, but thousands of people, 10%, you're going to bring a lot of folks at the bottom along. And from our perspective, that's probably from a systems perspective, a powerful way to do it when you're talking about scale versus sort of going after the bottom folks. But it comes from the principle that thinking everyone else is doing something is going to really bring people along. I would also say that within it, it's very important to actually do stakeholder mapping because for instance, if your CEO is actively against it doesn't matter how many people are in the middle or supportive, right? It is critical to get their buy-in within it. So one of the other steps to do there is really map out who is the decision-making within it and where to target your effort. You know, I've worked one-on-one with a few CEOs. So quite often I'll get a call or a text or something from a CHRO saying, you know, can I talk to you privately? It was sort of designing a big rollout for 50,000 or 100,000 people. And I'll get this message, hey, I need to talk to you privately. And the message will go something like, and I've had this 20 times, something like, this is all great, everyone's on board, but I need you to work with the CEO. And I need you to somehow do some magic with the CEO so that they're on board. And I've obviously thought long and hard about what that magic is. And in the end, the one thing that's really worked, and I've had a lot of these conversations, is literally saying, have you ever had an experience where you felt really, really right about something And it ended up later, you were really, really wrong. And it cost you a ton of money and time and pain. And I haven't had a CEO yet say, no, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Everyone said like, yeah, actually. And then we start talking about it. And I personally, in my real life, have had those experiences. And I share some examples where I was really sure I was right and ended up being really wrong. It was really expensive. And for me, it's like, okay, we want to reduce those. So greater diversity, equity, and inclusion is actually about 
being right more often. And by that meaning hitting the market the right way, you know, innovating the right way, listening to your customers the right way, you know, speeding up your solutions the right way. Like it's actually about achieving your goals with fewer errors and ultimately making better decisions. So where I land on it with the CEO anyway is we're going to help you make fewer of those really dumb decisions. But by the way, you're going to need your team's help because no matter what I teach you about bias, you can't do much about it without actually your team calling each other out on bias. So you're going to need to learn this language, speak it, model it, you role model it, and then they'll do it with their teams and then it'll start to happen. And they sort of get that. And so the journey begins. So it's fun to tell that story. And just basing off a little bit of our research on power, it's like, you know, leaders are imbued with power. And sometimes what happens is people get very goal focused on their business goals and forget about the people. And so David, what you're helping them do is to bring their focus back on their people. And that's really important to do with leaders. Your Brain at Work is produced by the Neuroleadership Institute. You can help us in making organizations more human by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Danielle Kirschenblatt, and Cliff David is our production manager. Original music is by Grant Zubritsky, and logo design is by Catchware. We'll see you next time.